Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you again Uh, this morning. I've been sharing uh, from time to time some of the highlights that uh, I've had over the first few weeks of our time together here at Calvary Monument. And one of the highlights from my last week is I had occasion for the first time to get to take part in uh, a missions team meeting. And uh, it was incredibly encouraging to me. Uh, One of the reasons it was encouraging to me is because as I look at uh, the scope of Calvary Monument and I look at the number of missionaries uh, that Calvary Monument supports that have some kind of connection uh, from being raised up even within this congregation or being attached to families here at this congregation, it's just incredibly encouraging to me and it's a testimony of the work that Jesus has done here uh, in the life of this church. And so we give God the glory for that and we celebrate that and we want to celebrate and pray for and continue to remember and lift up our missionaries and the great work that God is doing in and through their lives all throughout the world. And so uh, indeed that was a pleasure on Thursday night to be able to attend that meeting. And together, as we have uh, begun, we've been going through the book of John, and last week we closed out and we wrapped up the first chapter of the book, and of course we've been studying the book through the lens of the purpose for which it is written. And as we move into John chapter 2 today, we're going to begin to unpack some of the incredible and miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus did throughout his ministry on earth. And each one of the signs and wonders that Jesus performed uh, was meant to direct our attention towards some incredible attribute of His glory. And in the instance today, we're going to find Jesus as the Creator uh, who's bringing wine from nothing, from water. And we're going to be able to see how powerful He is as our Creator. And so our goal today as we go into John chapter 2 is to recognize the miraculously creative power of Jesus, affirming our belief and causing us to experience life in His name. And we'll do this today by breaking down John chapter 2 into three parts. Uh, together we'll first observe the setting, the context of the, of the miracle that occurs. We'll then detail the situation, what, what arose, and finally we'll look at witnessing the supernatural event that Jesus performs. And so if you have your Bible today, if you turn to John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. And as you turn there, we'll pray. Father God, we come together on Sunday morning as a body of believers with anticipation of hearing your word. And Father, we trust and we pray as we come together to go into your word together that you might use it as bread to nourish us. Now, Father, your, your spirit might work in a way that we would leave this place and the truth that we would find in your word, that we would discover from it this morning, would change us. And it would cause us to live here, leave here differently. It would cause us to live in a way that would honor you. It would cause us to love others better tomorrow than we do today. And to love you better tomorrow than we do today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go to John chapter 2, we'll read the account, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Now, at the beginning of John chapter 1, uh, laying a context, John had introduced us to the Word. And one of the attributes that he gave to the Word, one of the, the, the truths that he said were true of who the Word was, he revealed in John chapter 1, verse 3, he said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Later on, at the end of John chapter 1, what we explored last week, Jesus had approached Nathanael, and you remember Nathanael had become convinced in his mind that Jesus was indeed this Messiah, and Jesus looks at him and he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And as we enter John chapter 2, John is keep, or Jesus is keeping this promise to his disciples. He's beginning very, on, very early on here in his ministry. Three days, we read at the beginning of John chapter 2, three days into his ministry, he's already set about performing his first miracle. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So his public ministry began shortly after beginning to call the disciples unto himself. Now, Cana, Cana was a small town. Now, if you've ever had anybody say to you, uh, draw a map of Israel, and, and somebody's really held your feet to the fire about how you might draw or go about drawing a map of Israel, this is a map of Israel. And, and it's, a, it's a map of the lower Galilean region of Israel. And one of the the ways that are easy for us to remember to draw Israel, if you see the, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee there to the north, the Sea of Galilee is the Raisin, okay? So if you're going to draw the map of Israel, start with the Raisin, and then the Jordan River, the Jordan River right below the Sea of Galilee, that's the rope, okay? And at the bottom of the rope, there's a peanut. Does anybody know what the peanut is? The Dead Sea, okay? So next time someone says you, the Dead Sea's not up there, it's, it's at the bottom. Draw a map of Israel, and you're, and you're unsure... Raisin, rope, peanut. Raisin, rope, peanut. All right? And off to one side, we have the Mediterranean Sea. And off to the other side, we have all of the enemies of Israel. Okay? And so where this miracle has taken place, remember from last week, Jesus had been in Bethsaida. And you can see Bethsaida right up there on the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And he had traveled all the way to Cana, which was a city or a town that was along the Roman road. Now, this was a perfect launching pad for Jesus' ministry. The reason was, this, this was an obscure location. 
This was not, this was not Lancaster County in the summertime. This is not, you know, the, the, the place where all the tourists wanted to come and be, and, and there wasn't a lot to come see here, but yet it was the perfect place for Jesus to begin his ministry. And in the lower Galilean region, Jesus would do many of his signs and miracles. We know that he healed the official son in that region. We know that he drove out demons from individuals within that region, et cetera, et cetera. And this specific setting for this sign was a wedding feast. And, and Jewish weddings, they, they looked a little bit different than the weddings that we experience today. In fact, scholars have really uncovered uh, in the ancient Near Eastern history some, some common patterns of Jewish weddings. And we want to take a look at those patterns this morning. First, there was a marriage covenant. This was the first step. And think about it, in our weddings today, the, the contract, that's kind of like the last step. Well, that was put up in the front of the Jewish wedding ceremony kind of tradition. And in this, <clears throat> in this occasion, in this tradition, the father-in-law would, would essentially pay for the bride. And, and it was right for the father-in-law to pay because his family would be gaining a worker. Now think about it in terms of agriculture, in terms of what the families and the homes were involved in. His home, his family was gaining a worker. And, and the bride, the home that she was leaving, Losing someone who was, who was providing and help, help keep the, the house running and the farm going or whatever else they were doing. And so there was a payment that needed to be made. Another pattern would be the bridal chamber preparation. And what would happen is, is the son, the groom, who was preparing to marry the bride, he would go back to his father's house. And within his father's house, he would, he would be given a nook or a parcel of the father's house where he would build or create a bridal chamber where they would begin their married relationship and their married life together. When he was finished with the bridal chamber, he would then come back and he would retrieve the bride. After she was retrieved, she went through a ritual cleansing process. <clears throat> then there was a wedding ceremony. And this ceremony, this is not like the wedding ceremonies we think of today where, where we have hundreds of people and the bride walks down the aisle. And, and uh, this was more of a quiet private family, maybe a few religious leaders uh, and friends together. And then the marriage would be consummated back at the bridal chamber. And following this, there would be a week-long wedding feast or marriage celebration. Now today, we've, we've really just trimmed this down, right? A few hours, reception, you got married, we cheer for you, we eat some food and we go. Imagine that for the whole week, a week-long, seven-day wedding celebration, wedding feast, and many friends and family would be invited to come, and they'd come from long distances. And from the context here in, in chapter 2, verse 2, we can assume that Jesus was not alone with just his mother, that there may have been some of these other disciples who went with him. Of course, Nathaniel, we know, was from this area. And, and in, in chapter 1, he also meets Peter, John, Andrew, and Philip. We might also assume that because Mary was invited to the marriage, uh, to the wedding, and to the wedding feast that, that these people may have been close family friends or acquaintances to her uh, or to one of the disciples. Now, now, I believe that there is some significance here to the wedding scene as being the scene for Jesus' first sign. And, and I want you to think about this. At the very beginning, one of the first patterns, the marriage covenant. 
as the bride and groom had been united together and were celebrating at this marriage feast, as they had been united together under a covenant of marriage, so had God united with His people under a covenant very similar to a marriage covenant. Uh, if you have a pencil or pen and you're taking notes, write this passage down. Ezekiel chapter 16, 8 to 14. I just want to read this to you. This is This is beautiful, right from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, starting in verse 8, speaking of the marriage covenant that God had with his people. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver And your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And so here we have God who was in this marriage covenant, this relationship with Israel. And we have as Jesus' first scene the bridegroom being there uh, under a marriage covenant with the bride. We also have the arrival of the groom. And again, we know this from John chapter 1 when we, when we talked about Jesus coming and taking on flesh, the incarnation of Jesus. So here we find a, bra- a, a bride and a groom, but in a broader context, God had sent down His Son, the groom, to His bride, Israel. And both were present. The groom was present, but also there were Israelites and they were Jews there. And so in the context of this wedding feast, both were present. John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist describes Jesus as the bridegroom and himself as the best man. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then we have this celebration of marriage. The marriage feast, it was a time, it was the end of of those seven steps and and this whole week-long celebration, it was supposed to be a time of joy, rejoicing. So should have been the coming of God to His people. When Jesus came to earth, when He returned to earth, and, and He came back to the Jews, it should have been a time of celebration and rejoicing. This is affirmed in Mark chapter 2. It says this, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer to the question is no. No, we should be rejoicing. We, we should be celebrating. Nobody went to a wedding feast, a seven-day celebration, and didn't expect to have some joy and some celebration. That would be like, um, that would be like you getting invited to the White House's Thanksgiving dinner. Right? And this joyous occasion where they have all this food and they've made all this wonderful food and when you get there, you oh, I don't want to eat any of that. I'm fasting. Right? It wouldn't happen. We're celebrating. It's a time of rejoicing. But unfortunately, unfortunately, 
the wedding party and the lack of rejoicing and celebration and what's happening here with the running out of wine is indicative to the condition of Israel and where they have had been brought in their relationship with the Lord. You know, by the way, church, I think it's interesting that there may be a similar anticipation building for us today, right, as we await the second coming of the Messiah. Revelations chapter 16, verses 6 to 9, talk about a marriage feast that we will one day partake in as well. So what's happening? What's going on here? What's the situation that's stirring in this passage that needs to be resolved? Look down at verses 3 to 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, running out of wine at this wedding celebration, at this wedding feast, this was a major social faux pas. This was not supposed to happen. This would be like if you went to a movie theater and, and went to buy popcorn and they said, we don't have any. We're out. Like that, that just doesn't happen. How about candy? There's none here. It, it wasn't supposed to be like a band of instruments. It just, it wasn't supposed to happen. And so this is a critical situation for the couple that had been married and their family. That had to be dealt with immediately. And right away in verse 3, Mary's compassion is put on full display. If you look at verse 3, she says to Jesus, they have no wine. She cares. She cares about the situation. She cares about this couple not having to experience this social embarrassment. And really, again, the lack of wine is indicative to, symbolic to the spiritual condition of Israel at the time. Israel was barren. And the Messiah was among his people. And, and Jesus had come. And the prophecy had said that when Jesus returned, that there would be, uh, there would be mountains that shall drip with wine. If you look at verse 13 of Amos chapter 9, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And so there's this great irony, there's this great tension that's being built in this passage as we read it. Here we know from further reading in John 15 that Jesus was the vine. He compared himself to the vine, but yet here at this wedding, in the presence of the vine, there's an absence of wine, right? There's irony here. That that's being built, there's some tension, there's a situation that needs to be resolved. And, and in verse 4, you know, his, his mother, Mary, she knows. Being with Jesus, walking with Jesus, Jesus being her son, she recognizes that he's able and capable to do something about this. And, and she's a fixer. She sees a problem, but she knows that Jesus can bring resolution to it. My son can do something about this. So she goes to him and she informs him, believing that he might fix the matter. However, this miracle wouldn't be performed according to Mary's instruction or timing or desire. But it would be performed in perfect accordance with the plan of God for the ministry of Jesus on earth. And Jesus always acted in perfect obedience to the will of the Father while he was on earth. And the desire of his father would always take precedence over the desire 
of his earthly relationships. Now, I think we have to deal with the way Jesus addresses his mother here in this passage. Because if I'm going to be honest with you, and maybe if you're going to be honest with me, maybe it's something, uh, it's something that you've struggled with a bit as you've read this passage. And, and you know, for many years I've had opportunity to preach, uh, and, and I've avoided this passage because I've wrestled with the way Jesus interacted with his mother here. Right, and some, some, of, some of us uh, reading this, we see him say to her, woman, and we think this is harsh. Why would he address her this way? I, I think about trying to teach my own children how to address their mother, right? And we don't talk to your mom that way. And we tell them, we try to correct them. And, and here Jesus, some scholars believe that, that Mary was being disrespectful and out of place because at Jewish wedding celebrations, the men, they, they would congregate and recline and they would dine in one area and the women would be separate and they would be kind of congregating and gathering and, and socializing and dining in another area. And so some scholars believe that when Mary crossed that boundary, that, that she had crossed a line and now Jesus was kind of putting her back in her place and in, in her right position and correcting her. Some say that he was protecting himself. Because he didn't want people to truly see yet that he was the Messiah. He didn't want to truly reveal himself yet. And I think partly that may be true. But I think there's more to this than just that. More to this than what's going on here. And, and I told the first service, and I want to tell you, put an asterisk next to this. Because this is, this is just Chris Lenhart talking right now. Okay? This is just, as I've wrestled with this passage, as I've looked at it, and I've tried to come to a conclusion of, of what Jesus is saying to his mother here, this is my understanding in the context of what is happening. So here we have a Jewish wedding feast and there's a large number of people that have gathered. We're not aware of how many people are at the wedding. That's one re reality. Two, we're not aware of how, may, uh, how many may or may not have known that Mary was Jesus' mother. We're not aware of how many knew the relationship or the connection. And finally, we're unaware of the intentions of those who were in attendance were they to find out that Jesus was the Messiah and Mary was his mother? We're not aware of that. And so I believe that given the circumstances, what Jesus is doing here has accurately been referred to, I think, as distancing himself from his mother. It would be as you or I um, interacting with a woman would say, ma'am. Ma'am. It's, it's respectful, but it's creating distance. And so people may further question, well, well, why wouldn't he just say mom? And she's his mother. Why wouldn't he just call her by her name? And, and I believe that the reason he doesn't is because the separation would be important. As Jesus became more and more popular, he became more and more hated. And more and more people sought to either kill him or sought to forcibly place him on a throne. And I believe that Jesus was protecting his mother. He had her best interest and security in mind here as he addressed her. The address created a separation. It wouldn't have identified her in a public setting as being his mother. Jesus was always kind to women. In every interaction he has with women, with women in scripture, he's always kind to them. And I don't believe that his kindness is any different here with his mother. I believe he truly has her best interest in mind. And he's protecting her, protecting her identity um, and her future security. Knowing what was going to happen to his disciples. And knowing what was going to happen to him and what was coming. And so he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. 
And, and that passage, that phrase is actually used often. It's used in, in John chapter 7.30. It's used in John uh, chapter 8 verse 20 and John chapter 13 verse 1 as he's preparing for his death. And we know as a church that his hour would not fully be realized until the events of the triumphal entry and the crucifixion and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And Mary's response of, in verse 5 when she says, do whatever he tells you. Now, I believe it's further evidence that Jesus wasn't correcting her and just simply trying to put her in her place. Mary still understood that Jesus had ability and and could do something about this. So she looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he says to you. Her response would also have taken the mind of an Israelite listener back to another time in their history when there wasn't a lack of wine, but a lack of food. Genesis chapter 41, verses 55. If you remember, the land of Egypt uh, had been under great famine. And Joseph had been given a position of power in this land. And when the land of Egypt was famished, in verse 55, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Do something for us. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And so Pharaoh sends the people of Egypt to Joseph, and of course we know they're able to get food and they're fed. And just as God used Joseph to provide for the Egyptians in this great time of famine, restoring joy and order in a time of great need, so would Jesus bring wine from water to restore joy and order to this wedding. And now the celebration could move forward and Jesus was prepared to do the supernatural. So as you're open still to John chapter 2, Let's look at verses 6 to 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I believe that as we look at the compendium of Jesus' miracles, all the signs and and wonders that he performed in all of the Gospels. I made four observations as to the purpose for his signs. And I'm sure there's more. Uh, These are just the four that that I look at here. But, But as we go into this and look at this miracle, why did Jesus do this? Why does he perform the miracles and signs that he does? One, to display the power and glory of God. Certainly God's power would be put on display as Jesus used just a word to turn water into wine. Second, to magnify the person and work of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that in verse 11 at the end, his disciples believed in him. Third, to convince those who would believe. They were convinced. And then finally, a reason that we may often overlook of why Jesus did the signs and wonders that he did when he was on earth was it was to reveal the hardened hearts of those who would reject him. Jesus would do many signs and many miracles. And there were people that that would still reject him, still not see him as he truly was. And in the context of this miracle, 
Jesus is not yet ready to reveal his glory to the public at large. This miracle he performs in private, and only a few would know who's responsible for turning the water into wine. I believe there's another irony that's attached to this miracle. Should it be any surprise to us that in Jesus' first miracle, he's pressing into or pressing against the Jewish purification rituals, the, the religious order or the law as it had been established and interpreted by the Pharisees. Here we have these stone pots, and these stone pots that were placed there, they were meant for ritual cleansing. That's what they had probably been used for in their entire existence, as stone pots. But Jesus had a better way. And I believe there are some really interesting similarities between the stone pots in this event of Jesus turning the water into wine and the law, right? So both the stone Pots and the law held a common form. In their most common form, they were both made of stone. The, the law, when it was first given, it was given on stone tablets. Here are stone pots that are used to hold water. Both the law and the stone pots held within them something by which people believed they could be cleansed. In both cases. In the case of a wedding feast, you came and used the stone pots to, to cleanse, to wash your hands or to wash elements you were using, and you, you walked away thinking that you were clean. But, but you and I who regularly wash our hands know that cleansing something is pretty inadequate once you grab the doorknob to leave the restroom, right? I mean, you, you wash your hands at the sink, and you turn around, you grab a doorknob, and, and it's not, you're really not clean anymore. You go out and you touch a light switch. Somebody just, I, I, I've witnessed this before, somebody sneezing and then turning a light switch on, right? And you don't know that a person sneezed and turned a light switch on. And so you're going over and you, that we're not clean anymore. Probably should go wash our hands again. But the, the, the stone cleansing pots, they gave the, the image that you could have something clean. You could cleanse yourself and be part of this great celebration. It was an image that, that was portrayed. And, and the law, in many ways, did the same thing. Within the law, there were commands. Like within the pot, there was water. Within the law, there were commands. Follow these commands and you will be clean. Follow these commands and you will be made right. But as we sit here today, we know, we realize that both were inadequate. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they had turned the law into an arbiter of fear. The fear of becoming unclean. Imagine if we walked around like that all the time. I mean, I, maybe some of you do. I think my wife might, so don't be offended. You might uh, walk around with those, uh, what those, what do they call those things? Where you can wash, like wipe your hands with alcohol, like little swabs and drips and stuff. You know, and you carry that stuff around and, and you try to clean yourself all the time. And you think, well, well I don't have germs because I'm using these things. But, but we know they're inadequate. And, and there was this fear that the religious leaders had driven into the minds of the people. Fear of being unclean. Fear of performing a miracle or working on the Sabbath day. What might be considered work or not considered work. Fear of associating with or eating the wrong kinds of food or being with the wrong kinds of people. Fear of, of, of being near the dead or the dying. All of these things. The Pharisees had turned, into, turned the lull into fear. And Jesus was saying there's a better way. To, to be controlled or motivated by fear is no way to live. But it's a trap that we easily fall into today. And when fear controls our life, joy disappears. 
Let me say that again. When fear controls our lives, joy disappears. And, and in the context of, uh, of this miracle, here Jesus is restoring joy. In the Bible, wine and joy are, are always closely related to one another. And, and so Jesus is restoring joy. He's restoring celebration to this wedding feast and this wedding ceremony. Now, according to verse 6, each of these stone pots held between 20 to 30 gallons of water, totaling somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine that Jesus had, 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 had brought from water. And Jesus in verse 7 gives clear instructions to the servants of what to do. Now, there was a formal order or authority here at the wedding ceremony. There was a master of the ceremonies, and his, his job was throughout the whole week. He was in control of making everyone had what they wanted to eat and to drink. And, and so he probably early on recognized that this was going to be an issue. But I find it ironic that it was the master of the ceremonies who Jesus revealed himself to. He didn't know how this wine had been created or where it had come from. Who did Jesus reveal himself to as he performed the miracle? The lesser servants. The lesser servants. And the wine is brought out to the master of the ceremony and it's, it's new and it's delicious and it's, it's uncommon. You don't save the good wine for last. Something's different about this wine. And it seems like this was the testimony of Jesus in the Scriptures. He was always exceeding the expectations of His disciples when performing signs and wonders. In this miracle, it's not just that we find a high quantity of wine, but we also find that the quality of the wine is delicious. It's both bountiful and delicious. Later, Jesus would talk about destroying and raising the temple in just three days. He would heal the royal official's son from a long distance, not having to be right there to touch him, but from being far away. There was a lame man who had been disabled for 38 years. And after 38 years, Jesus was able to heal him. Jesus is able to feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. Lazarus, he laid in a tomb dead for four days. It wasn't the day that he died that Jesus raised him from the dead. It was after he stinketh. Four days later. Then Jesus went and raised him from the dead. It was only then. And so over and over and over again, Jesus is showing himself exceeding our expectations in how he performs these miracles. And we'll see this as we continue to investigate and explore the miracles of Jesus over the next few weeks and months. It's the question that we might ask ourselves today is how should our lives look in light of these realities? And at the conclusion of the first of the seven signs that John would recount, John reveals that the sign's purpose really was twofold. One, to magnify or manifest His glory. Right? And doesn't that take us back to John chapter 1, verse 14, where, where John had said, we have seen His glory? Well, what is one of the ways that we have seen His glory? Turning water into wine. One of the ways, one of the significant ways, but the second reason that this miracle was performed is so that the disciples would be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And it says at the end of chapter 2 and verse 11 that they believed. That they believed. Now, it, it does occur to me 
that turned this, this wine, this miracle of turning water into wine, it, to us, maybe it does seem kind of like a, a fickle thing. I mean, couldn't they have just gotten out the wine? Could, they could have just probably continued the wedding ceremony and celebration and it would have been okay without the wine. And, and it may seem kind of uh, arbitrary to us. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he go about this trouble to turn this water into wine? When I think one of the reasons is because Jesus cares about the day-to-day, everyday social circumstance things that we deal with. He's, he's, he's deeply acquainted with the day-to-day struggles that we have. And, and he cares about them. And so in, in the context of this miracle, on top of all the other things we look at, he cares about this couple who's there. And, so, and that they could continue to celebrate and not face this social embarrassment. But this also occurs to me. It tells us in the scriptures that the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. The joy of the Lord is to be our strength. And, and I believe that, friends, as, as a church, and, and, and as believers, as individuals, we can get worn out sometimes by people. And, and sometimes our joy, we go through circumstances in life where our joy could be robbed and, and stolen, and, and we just feel joyless. Whether it's a circumstance that we're going through, whether it's a relationship that's bringing us difficulty, whether it's a struggle our church is having, whether it's something going on community, in our neighborhood, at our work, at our jobs. There's all these things in life that can attack and can rob and can go after and steal our joy. But, but the reminder in the context of this miracle is that Jesus is the great restorer of joy. And the joy of the Lord should be our strength. And, and, and if you sit here today in, in this congregation and, and you feel full of joy and you're saying, man, I, I, I'm experiencing joy in the Lord, not walk through difficult times, but the Lord has been my strength and his joy has been my strength, then we should be thankful. And, and, and we should be praying that the Lord would reveal to us the people and relationships in our lives that, that aren't experiencing that joy right now. Maybe some are believers and maybe what we can do even this week is to go and encourage them, to go and love them, to drop them a card, to stop by and knock on their door, and to just let them know, you know, as they walk through this season of life, the joy of the Lord is, is, is their strength. He's their strength. He can restore their joy. He's able to do that. Would you pray? Father God, as we unpack this miracle that you performed today in John chapter 2, we recognize that there are times in our lives where we do not live according to this joy where we forget that you are our joy, where circumstances or people or situations that we're walking through become heavy and burdensome to us, and we lose the joy of the Lord in our setting. Father, might you renew that in our hearts today. God, for those of us that sit here today and rejoice and and sit secure in this joy of the Lord. And for those of us that will leave here rejoicing in the joy of the Lord today, might you lay on our hearts friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, people from our own congregation that need their joy restored or renewed. And God, might you call us and might you convict us to go to them and to just love them, to just let them see you working through us 
so that their joy might be restored. Father, might our actions, the work of our hands, and and might the words of our mouths be like sweet wine to those who we come into contact with every day in our lives. And might people know that our source of hope and joy and love is only found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go today, might you go in that joy, rejoicing that He is our source of hope, He is our source of joy, and might you share that with others that He brings into your life this week. Have a wonderful